This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Acri Farley. Today I'm speaking with Alex Villacana of the Refined Distillery in Paso Robles, California. Thanks for joining me today, Alex. Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. Yeah, well, and thanks for getting the sun to shine. Uh, we are outside, so if anyone hears any background noise, that's just uh, nature for once. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have a conference room. We're a small yeah. distillery and winery, so the outside is uh, where we're recording. So, so I'm, gl- I'm glad the weather is so fantastic. Tell me a little about your distillery. Where are we? What are you building here at Refined? Absolutely. So we actually are Villacana Winery and Refined Distillery. Oh, so okay. um, we're here on the uh, west side of Paso Robles. We've been a winery here in the region since 1993 um, and started the distillery in 2011. Oh, wow. So, you know, we are located in the Central Coast. It's a wine region. Yep. Why you already opened a winery? Why open up a distillery in the middle of wine country? What kind of... Where does Refined come from? You know, actually, um, so we actually started our winery in 1993 when there was only 17 wineries here in the area. So uh, we've uh, seen the wine region oh, wow. grow. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Oh, my gosh. So just even that, yeah, your winery itself was one of the first ones here. Yeah, no, so we uh, we didn't actually at the, at the time have a, a bricks and mortar. We rented space from another local winery. And then in uh, 2002 when we built our own facility. And uh, mm-hmm. so when we actually built our own facility, I think there were 60 wineries. Okay. And, you know, now there's, <laughs> you know. Back I, growth, I, yeah, wow. exactly. And I've heard there's somewhere between 250 and 300. 300 bonded wineries here in the region. So it's it's incredible. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's amazing. So then you were one of the first wineries here. Why be the first distillery or one of the first distilleries in the region? Where did that come idea come from? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It, it, a lot of people say, well, did you just want to have fun and do it? Did you, you're following the craft distilling movement. And to be honest, it was something that grew out of the wine business. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about sustainability in farming. Mm-hmm. And I think most wineries want to be sustainable. And one sure. of the processes we do as a winemaker, I loved the the effect it had on our finished wines. It's a process called bleeding. Okay. Um, and all that means is when the grapes come into the winery, especially varieties like a Morvedra, Grenache, or a Syrah, mm-hmm. which tend to be a very big grape variety compared to, say, some of the varieties that people know like Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot. And when um, you say big, what do you mean by that? They're the, gigantic the, grapes? or <laughs> Yeah, it would be like comparing, like a, say, an orange to oh. like smaller fruit, like a you know a strawberry or something wow, like that. Wow, so, okay. So the, the Grenache grapes can be very big, mm-hmm. um, where you know, Cabernet is relatively small. And a lot of people know that the, the color of red wine comes from the skins of the grapes. Yeah. And a lot of the kind of the, the textural compounds come out of the skins of the grapes, too, the tannins and, and some of the, those qualities. And so when you have a bigger grape and you want to get better color and those textural compounds out of the skins, one of the tricks we do is actually to change the ratio of juice to skins. Okay. And that's this process of bleeding. And all hmm. we're, all that means is basically when the grapes come into the winery, we uh, stem them, they go into a fermentation tank. Yeah. Before we add yeast to get that fermentation going, we'll actually pull a certain percentage of the juice out um, to change that ratio of juice to skins and the, the, the resulting oh, fermentation. Oh, okay. And... Unfortunately, what we do with yeah. that juice that we pull okay. out, which which can be 30, 40, sometimes even 50% of your raw material. Oh my gosh, that um, much. And this is the free-run juice. And this mm-hmm. isn't stuff at the end of the fermentation. Yeah. is It ends up getting poured right down the drain. No yeah. way, really. Yeah. That's and the traditional, what would normally be done with it. Is it uh, that's, yeah. yeah, some people make a rosé out of it. Oh, um, okay. And, you know, a lot of people ask, well, why don't you use this all for rosé? Mm-hmm. And you possibly could on certain years. And the reason why I say on certain years is it depends on the style of harvesting. 
that you're getting. Okay. Um, here in Paso Robles, we're pretty warm, and our sugars tend to get pretty high, and our acidity tends to drop as the grapes get riper. I see. And for red wines, you want really big ripeness to get the really neat kind of fruit characteristics in the wine that we're looking for. Well, in a rosé, if you get high sugars and low acidity, you're going to basically have a very high alcohol flat wine, and that just okay. doesn't fit with a rosé <laughs> wine. Sure. And so unless you toy with it a, a bunch, it mm-hmm. never turns out to be a good rosé. So most small wineries end up just dumping this juice down the drain because it's gotcha. just not worth wasting time over. Mm, plus you need room to just process it, bottle it, and all that kind of stuff. And Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so in, you know, you're doing this you know, a little bit here, a little bit there through the course of the season. And so if you have you know, 40 lots of you know, 30 gallons of rosé, it mm-hmm. would just be a nightmare to deal with. Gotcha. And so, so you have all this product. You've raised it. Uh, you've pressed it. Uh, you've, money has gone into the creation of this bled-off product. And now you're just going to put it down the drain, so that's... <laughs> it kills you. It kills you. I bet. I, I, I'm just thinking about that. 50%. My gosh. Yeah, no, when you spend, yeah. you know, eight months on a tractor, you harvest mm-hmm. something, and then pour half of the work down the drain. Oh, or, or, you know, grapes go between two and $3,000 a ton here in Paso Robles, and wow. you dump 50% of that down the drain, it's, mm, you know, it's a substantial sum of money at the absolutely. end of the day. Absolutely. So we toyed around with different ideas on how to use this. And again, I get back to that. We wanted to be sustainable. It takes a lot of effort to basically farm it, to basically water it, to harvest it. And then to literally throw it away just didn't make sense to me as a, yeah. you know as an individual. And, and you know we um, as I said we toyed around with juice, we toyed around with aged brandies, and I could never really figure out how to make that financially make sense. Okay. And then I actually stumbled across about eight years ago the fact, and I think it was a, a competing uh, grape-based vodka. To be honest, I didn't know you could make vodka out of grapes. Yeah. And uh, when I actually saw that, that's when the light bulb went off. And so, you know, did some fun reading through the uh, the, the TTB regulations mm-hmm. and, and stumbled off across the fact that you could actually make a, a, a vodka out of grapes. And Nothing well in the reg said you couldn't. Nothing. And, yeah. and, and actually, when you actually read the definition, you could make vodka and gin out of anything. And I think just the perception out there is that people make it out of potatoes mm-hmm. uh, when actually most of it is grain. But, um, but grapes are actually arguably a, a better material to start with. Okay. Um, I always jokingly tell people when they come and, uh, and you know, are trying the products that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm gonna, next time I'm going to bring a, a glass of grape juice mm-hmm. and a glass of potato juice and ask which one <laughs> which you, you want have. to have your, as your base material. And, yeah. and I think it'd be pretty clear cut with the, at least at that base point it would be. So, Well, you know, I've, I've had your, so on that point, I've had your gin before. And okay. it's, you know, I don't really have the right pardon the term, I don't really know what other terms to say, but the mouthfeel of it, it has a very full mouthfeel on, on the palate. I guess, you know, almost great, almost wine-like, I, I suppose. Is that the the, the grape base, the wine base of that? Is that kind of it, where that's coming through? It's definitely coming through, and that's kind of yeah. one of those uh, neat little technical things. One of the byproducts of alcoholic fermentation is a mm-hmm. chemical called glycerol. It's a natural sugar. Okay. And it is produced, not in direct correlation, but the more alcohol that's produced in the initial fermentation, the more glycerol that's produced in the finished product. Yeah. And so it is found in beer. It is found in any alcohol that's fermented from whatever you start with. But if you think about a grain-based fermentation, which most vodkas are grain-based or most gins are grain-based, a beer is probably between 6 and 10% initial alcohol, Okay. where a wine is going to be roughly double that. Mm-hmm. And so we're producing, for lack of better words, double the amount of glycerol. Uh, and yes. glycerol is, you know, we a lot of people talk about it in the wine business as legs in a wine glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what the glycerol is. It's coating the glass. Okay. And the glycerol is going to do the same thing in your mouth. 
And why it has mixed importance with wine is if you have lovely flavors in your wine, you want it to coat your mouth. You want all those things to linger. Absolutely. Well, if you don't have great flavors in your wine, you don't want that glycerol. And so <laughs> Let's glycerol, get it out of the mouth immediately. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> sure. and, and so glycerol doesn't have anything to do with the way the wine was made. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not a quality on the, the way the wine is made. Sure. It's just a, a level of how much sugar and how much ripeness you had in that fruit. Okay. And so it... it it's important if you have a good wine. It's mm-hmm. not so important if you have a bad wine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> if you follow that whole yes, absolutely. Thing. So, but that so you can, have a fantastic wine because you have all this glycerol out there. Exactly. Yeah. So no. So so anyway. So that glycerol is an important piece of what makes our spirits so special. Okay. Because that glycerol is a natural glycerol that comes across in the distillation, and it gives our spirits a really soft textural mouthfeel with a kind of a neat sweetness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, glycerol is so important. I have heard that some grain producers of vodka will actually add bulk of glycerol to their products, trying to soften them a bit. Okay. But we don't need to do that because it's just a natural byproduct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's that's fascinating. Uh, In your distilling process, then, do you... You know, do you do things a little bit differently than other people to in order to protect those glycerols as it goes through the the process of being distilled? Or you know, in the distillation process, you really don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it'll come across naturally. The one thing we don't do that a lot of people will do is we don't do a hard filtration on our on our spirits. Oh, really? Okay. Um, for me, you know, if I told people that I carbon filtered my wine, I think they would look at me sideways and go, "His wine <laughs> must stink because uh, he's carbon filtering." Yeah. What, what are you trying to what take you out trying of to get? Yeah. Exactly. And and so so why? Why has it become a positive to carbon filter your spirits? Mm-hmm. Um, if they're beautiful, say, trace aromatics, yeah. why strip those out of there? Why take something out if it is not a flaw? Mm-hmm. For me, in, in winemaking, you don't filter unless you have to. And yeah. spirits should be the exact same thing. Um, if you do your job right from the beginning, you shouldn't have to filter at the end. And sure. uh, and so for me, it's it's more philosophical than it is anything else. You might as well make a great product instead of trying to strip everything away. That makes sense to me too. <laughs> so what has kind of been the process like for you getting a distillery open versus having a wine, getting your winery open? If you can kind of remember back to the 90s yeah. when you got your winery <laughs> open, was, was the process different? Was it more difficult? You know, I, I imagine a lot of wineries are kind of interested in, in, in doing this now. You know, yeah. what what was it like for you to... You know, uh, it it was a lot more challenging than I thought it was going to be, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. You know, I, I almost thought it was going to be, you know, I already had an alcohol license for years and years and years. Sure. And I thought it you would be You knew what just, a bonded warehouse was and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What the TTB was. And, and so I thought it would be just like adding a new kind of certificate onto my existing license. Yeah. It is nothing like that. It's, um, <laughs> you literally start from square one and mm-hmm. actually you have to go backwards a little bit. Okay. Because our winery and distillery are in the same building. So the distillery oh. is nested inside. We actually had to go back and amend all of our winery licenses as well to remove the parts that were then becoming a distillery. Really? And so it wasn't just a matter of, you know, moving forward with a new license. It was basically restarting with our yeah. existing licenses to, to, to repair where, or remove where the winery was. Sure. It sounds so, a little like open heart surgery where, you know, your winery is running just fine and now it's like, oh, we have to go back there and touch those old permits that are actually doing a-okay. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a little, little nerve-rattling, I'm sure, just a little bit. It is. Because the whole business is now being reopened. All your licenses are. Well, and one of the scary things, too, is when you actually start this whole process, it wasn't like there was a question whether we were going to be able to get our license. Sure. I, you know, I wasn't overly nervous about it. Yeah. But there was the fact that you had to actually have the serial number mm-hmm. of the still before you actually started. <laughs> and so there was a, a pretty big financial commitment before they actually said, yes, you have that license. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you get the still and you don't have the license, there's not a lot you can <laughs> do with it legally lot. anyway. Right. Um, and so, um, <laughs> Ethanol? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, 
so the process went, you know, it took us about a year to get through all the licensing part of it. Okay. California was actually uh, relatively fast because they defer a lot of that licensing to the federal government. Oh, I see. And so once we actually got our, our license, the federal government, the state of California was relatively quick. The, I'll be honest, the people were extremely helpful. It just mm-hmm. took a lot of time. It just yeah. took time. Yeah. Yeah. So on that, on, on the experience of running a distillery within a winery. Mm-hmm. From what I've heard, one of the issues you kind of run into sometimes is you can't have any winery functions going on at the same time that you're running your distillery, or there has to be a clear separation between the operation of the two things. Does that kind of introduce a scheduling issue for you, or just make sure your supply chain, for lack of a better word, is, is well-ordered? Yes, yeah, so, no, it, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's... so. When we originally started the winery, we rented space. Yeah, and, uh, we, okay. In California, it's called alternating proprietorship. Yep. And, and okay. basically, it's it's very similar to what we're doing here between a winery and distillery. There's designated spaces that you use for each different process. So it's it's something I was very familiar with before we actually got this started. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have, a, as I was talking about the licensing, we have dedicated spaces that are specifically distillery and then specifically winery. And then we have tanks that are considered alternating tanks that can go between winery and distillery. And, okay. And so it's, it's not that hard. Hard. It's just you have to, you know, kind of know what the system is all about before you actually kind of can, can do it comfortably. Yeah. We're small. We don't produce a lot of spirits. We don't produce a lot of wine. And so it's, it's manageable. If you were doing it on a really large scale, it would be just uh, unless you had a full-time person to take care of it. Okay. It could, it could be, a, it could be a, a bit of a headache, but, but it, it works well. Yeah. Very cool. So what would you say was kind of the biggest hurdle then in getting your distillery underway? You know, it's the, the, the hurdles are many. Uh-huh. It's uh, probably financial is probably one <laughs> okay, of the biggest. Right. That, that needing um, that serial oh. number before you get your burn. exactly, and you have a beautiful um, copper still in there, and it looks like it was a, it was an investment, um, yeah, yeah. huge investment. And you know, yeah. it's uh, copper is it was crazy expensive when we actually bought the still, and so mm-hmm. so just the commodity price alone. Okay, but then, but then it does come from Germany, which uh, oh, you know, yeah. the, right. the the Germans are not producing cheap anything, sure. whether it's cars <laughs> or stills. Um, to get here <laughs> exactly yeah. that has to come across the ocean and actually ours flew over the ocean which is pretty Whoa. cool it's a smaller still so they actually just put it on top of a plane okay. or not no, top, 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 wait in, a in a plane, in photos plane. Of yeah it's like the shuttle um, <laughs> so the question was hurdles you know there really weren't any hurdles per se it was just a kind of whole new set of regulations okay. you know well, wine and beer have gone through all sorts of revisions through the Tidehouse laws, so they're they're mm-hmm. relatively easy. Spirits are still a little bit more regulated, and so that was probably yeah. trying to learn the nuance of spirits law was definitely a, thing, okay. a, a, a challenge. You know, production. You know, there's definitely things that are different between spirits and wine. But having you know at the time 18 years of uh, wine background definitely was uh, made a lot of that happen faster. Okay, uh, for me, spirits. A lot has to do with just what we're doing with wine is that initial fermentation plays a key role. A lot of people don't talk about it. A mm-hmm. lot of people talk about, you know, the filtering or the distilling process. Right, right, right. Like, let's just throw some turbo dog yeast in there. Fermentation is done in two days, and now we just throw it in the still. Yeah, yeah that's, and, uh, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, it'd be... You just, a winemaker, it's like, wait a second. Wait a second. Really? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the fermentation is like where you actually develop all those flavors. And, yeah. You know, it, and if it's a clean base material, it makes it easier to distill it. It makes mm-hmm. it easier to then buy bottle it without having to uh, without having to filter it and so for me that 18 years of winemaking background I think accelerated mm-hmm. my ability to be a good distiller okay because I think the the part that a lot of people don't talk about in distilling is that the fermentation is so important yeah whether it in my case be grapes or in you know like a whiskey it'd be like being a really good brewer producing mm-hmm. a great beer first 
and then yeah. distilling that. Because what you're doing is you're magnifying those flavors that are coming through from that initial fermentation. Mm-hmm. And if you do a dirty fermentation, you know, you're going to produce, whether it's beer producing disulfides or hmm. wine producing hydrogen sulfides, yep. you're, you know, that sulfurous character is going to come across, your off aromas are going to come across, and you're either hmm. going to have to distill it a lot more, or you're going to have to he- do a heavy carbon filtration, which will not only knock out those off flavors, but they're mm-hmm. also going to knock off the positive flavors. Okay, and it kind of goes back to your point, if you do it right at the beginning, you don't got to worry about stripping bad stuff off at the end, whether in your still or through carbon filtration. Exactly. So, what kind of products do you make here, then? Uh, now that we've kind of talked about your process, what do you actually put that process to use in? What does Refined uh, put in a bottle? Yeah. No, so our, our core products are a grape-based vodka and a grape-based gin. Okay. And those are what we came out first in 2011 with. The Both products are four times distilled, both 100% grape-based. And this is mm-hmm. because we're using the juice that's coming off of uh, from other wineries as well, our own winery. Yeah. Uh, we ferment that, and that becomes the base material for our products. Okay. Um, the... Other products that we produce using the same grape-based spirit is we do a grape-based limoncello. We do a grape-based cucumber vodka. We we are also playing around outside the grape scope, doing some uh, kind of cooperative pro, uh, work with uh, some of the local breweries. Yeah. So we've worked with a slow brewery down in uh, San Luis Obispo. Oh, sure. Um, and we've produced a rye with them and actually have a bourbon that we produced that with them being released probably early next year in 2015. Very cool. And then we uh, were also playing around. We did a, a non-hopped version of uh, probably what most people know, Firestone is the, the biggest local brewery here. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, their beer 805. And so we did a non-hopped version of their 805 that we're playing around with. Well, so, sorry, when you work with the breweries, then um, <laughs> what is that process kind of like? Do they bring in, you know, their beer, their 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 early mash and then you distill that or how, how does that cooperation work yeah uh, so like slow brewery uh, yeah. they don't have a license to sell bulk beer so what they okay. do is they literally make the the base warp for me okay. um, and so we transport the base of the, the sugar water mm-hmm. back up here to the distillery and oh. then uh, and then distill it and that's actually pretty funny because slow brewery is a brewery in the downtown San Luis Obispo it's a little college town mm-hmm. and their little 10 barrel system is on the second floor of a downtown building okay you know, they have an, a little elevator where they can get the bags of grain up and down mm-hmm. the stairs, but they don't have a way to get like a tank from the top floor to the bottom floor. Wow, yeah. And so the only way we get this beer out of the building is literally we throw a hose out the second story window, <laughs> and I have my truck parked exactly in front of the building with a tank in it, and then okay. we actually, it's uh, it's basically like a two-story beer bong uh, yeah. with uh, you know, 300-something gallons of beer. Right. So it's, uh, it <laughs> Best is, college party ever, exactly. just follow this truck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't do it on a Friday night. Yeah, right. No you, want, you want to be able to distill it and everything will be gone. Yeah. <laughs> that's so. amazing. Wow, yeah. that's such a funny visual. I'm sure people are walking by thinking, what is going oh, on? Oh, absolutely. So so with uh, yeah, with the breweries, we're, cool. um, we're doing a rye. So uh, okay. we're doing a non-hopped rye beer. We're doing a bourbon. And then we're also doing uh, that non-hopped 805, which would be just considered more of a single malt. Okay. Got it, got it. And so and then, so I guess, yeah, so they just prepare the wort for you, and then you take it up here and, and do the distillation. Yeah, so we um, do the fermentation yeah. and distillation on site, and then we hmm. age it in uh, brand new American oak barrels. So that's really that's a really great collaboration. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's fun working with the brewers. You yeah. know, it's the neat thing about Paso Robles as a whole. It's a very collaborative environment with the uh, with the wineries, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of the wineries actually uh, you know <laughs> enjoy a beer or two now and oh, then. You don't say. <laughs> and um, and so it's been actually fun working with them because they're very interested in the whole distilling side as well. Yeah. And, and then like uh, I was talking about the, the one of the local breweries, uh, they'd actually do some uh, barrel aging stuff where they'll actually barrel uh, blend uh, different uh, kind of beer, uh, like uh, Firestone does their. Anna 
anniversary one. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they work with winemakers to actually come and help do the blend. So it's it's been this kind of neat back and forth kind of collaborative uh, environment mm-hmm. that, that we're working in right now. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. So I've always heard about, you know, other distilleries being helpful to other distilleries as they're mm. opening, kind of working through the process. But that kind of tripartite collaboration <laughs> between wineries, brewers, and distillers, that's uh, fascinating. I've never quite heard of that before. Yeah, no, we're all going through all yeah. the same hurdles. So I it's, guess so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, how did you learn how to distill then? Where, like, yeah. did you take a class or something? You know, you know how to make wine, but it's a, it is a different process. You're just firing up a piece of machinery in there. It, you, someone must have shown you how to do it. Did you lean upon other distillers in other parts of California, or where, where did yeah. you kind of learn that skill from? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. So I, I think I alluded to this earlier. I think being a winemaker for 18 years has helped mm-hmm. me be a distiller, and yeah, and I and I really think that has is a real core to it. So I think you know. An existing winemaker, an existing brewer is going to make a great distiller. But then, you know, the, the hands-on nuts and bolts. I actually went up to um, one of the first uh, distilleries up in uh, Spokane, Washington, Dry Fly Distilling. Oh, okay. And yeah. when they were getting started, and they were the, the first distillery in Washington, and they actually went to the state and had craft distillery legislation passed up there. <laughs> and they were doing some great wheat whiskeys and uh, a wheat a gin that they actually put out. Yeah. And while they were getting started and getting their product out there, they were actually giving classes on how to run the equipment. Okay. And so I went up there for about a week and went through the whole process with them. And and that gave me the fundamentals on how to use a still. And uh, when actually, I think earlier you asked a little bit about the the type of still we had. Mm-hmm. And, and our still is the same still that they actually have up in Spokane. Oh, okay. It's about three sizes smaller, but it's a, yep. a, a okay. Carl Distilleries out of um, Ice League in Germany. Oh, wow. And for me, it was I was very comfortable with it because I had run it for seven days. Sure. And people go, well, seven days, that's not a lot enough, <laughs> a lot of time for you to be a distiller. Well, for me, it's, you know, I use a lot of equipment in a winery. And yeah. for me, the, the still is just another kind of tool almost as a winemaker that I'm learning how to use. Mm-hmm. And when you're using a still, a lot of what you're doing is you're deciding on what to keep and what to get rid of. Yep. A lot of that is done by sensory analysis. You use temperature, but it's still it's your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your sense of texture, and that makes you decide what to keep and what to mm-hmm. get rid of. And if you think about winemaking, that's exactly what that's we do exactly as a winemaker. Right. And so, and actually, as a, with a spirit, it, uh, it actually can be even more magnified, so you're able to make those cuts and judgments a little bit easier because distilling is concentrating those flavors and aromas. And okay. So for me as a winemaker, it was actually very easy when it became time to to, to make the spirits mm-hmm. uh, on what to keep and what to get rid of. Gotcha. So um, you already had a super refined kind of palate, yeah. so you know where your heads are and where your hearts are and it, your tails. It, and, exactly. Yeah, and then it's funny, the, too. It's, it goes yeah. back to also your, you know, I wish I'd paid a little bit more attention in college <laughs> and high school chemistry. Yeah. Um, but once it actually, once you start going... It, you start to remember all these little nuances of high school, high school chemistry yeah. about the boiling points of different liquids and um, and <laughs> and the, the reflux technology in a still and, and stuff like that. So it's it yeah. actually uh, you know it it is a, a relatively simple process mm-hmm. on the distilling side, I would say, and that's why I get back to it. It really comes down to the fermentation sciences. I really think the, the yeah. good distillers are going to be the ones who have good fermenters in the uh, at mm-hmm. the get uh, go. Because it's it's ultimately just time and energy on the on the still, and nature's going to do what nature's going to do, and you have to control what you can, and that kind of starts at fermentation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, kind of talk to me a little bit about your still. What kind of still do you have? 
if you, if you don't mind just nuts yeah. and bolts of it, I'm, yeah. I'm always fascinated by this. So. No, absolutely. So we actually, um, when we first started this uh, in 2011, we thought it was going to be just a very kind of small side business to the uh, to the winery. Mm-hmm. So it was an accessory to use that juice that we were wasting. Yeah. And so we got a still that was relatively small, but it had lots of flexibility to it. Um, I kind of call it a hybrid still. Okay. Because it's really designed to make just about any spirit you could imagine on earth. It has your basic kettle with a helmet that has a built-in infusion basket uh, right in the helmet. Okay. It, the, the kettle can hook directly to your condenser, so for your basic still unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a three-plate column. Okay, it's um, a three-plate A three-plate with bypassable plates, mm-hmm. um, and that's used for producing your whiskeys or your brandies. Okay. Um, it's not necessary to produce a whiskey or brandy, but it helps fine-tune your cuts. But because you can actually add those plates while you're making the cuts, and then you can remove one or all of them if you want, depending on the flavor profile that's coming out of the distilled spirit. Um, and so that one gives you a lot of flexibility, and it can help fine-tune those cuts in, a, okay. in, a, in an aged spirit. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a 12-plate column. Okay. And the 12-plate column is used for the distillations that will end up making the base material for the vodka and the gin. Okay, I was, I was thinking, yeah, how would a three-plate column get the separations you need for vodka and gin, but that's where the 12-plate exactly. comes in. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so we can actually hook yeah. it up in any permutation. So we can just go okay. kettle to condenser, kettle to three-plate, or kettle to 12-plate. Oh, cool. And so it, it makes it so it gives us a lot of flexibility. Mm-hmm. We also have the still set up where we can actually do steam infusion into the kettle for your traditional grappa distillation. Okay. And so we just made it so because we didn't know what we were going to end up producing yeah. with it, and we wanted to make sure we had ultimate flexibility. Um, we did buy a second still about two years ago now, mm-hmm. and that one um, is a little bit more just a traditional Olympic style still okay. that helps us with the initial distillation that we do. But then it also, once we get through that initial distillation of the wine, we can do a little bit more experimentation and do some of the wan- the whiskeys and brandies. Wandies. Well, you said anything you can imagine, you can distill, so that's a new one. Exactly. <laughs> and to be honest, with the uh, the first still we had, once we get through our initial, what we call stripping distillation, mm-hmm. it is busy for the rest of the year making the vodka and gin just to keep up. Okay. Um, that we weren't getting as much time as we wanted to experiment, mm-hmm. and so that's why we wanted that second still. Gotcha. And um, that one was a Carl still as well. A little bit different design on the helmet, and more alembic, so I could play mm-hmm. around with the, the more the brandies and, um, and the whiskeys. And then this winter, so December uh, of 2014, we are actually going to be getting a third still. Wow. Um, which is going to be um, considerably larger than the ones we have now. It's a it's a 600-liter still. Okay. Same company, Carl. At this point, I'm just very comfortable with what sure. they have. <laughs> they're they're, they're product is just unbelievable. I yeah. mean, the, the craftsmanship is, is just fantastic. They're definitely not the cheapest still, but they're very well built, and their support is very good. Um, and um, we're getting uh, the 600 liter will have a swan's neck helmet, which is a little bit more designed for the whiskeys. And then we're actually having two nine-plate columns, but th- again, you can use either column, both columns at the same time, uh, or bypass both. And gotcha. so it, it gives us, uh, again, that flexibility um, as we're growing in size. So if you don't mind me asking, you know, how do you get all the... Uh so, so you're talking about flexibility, and, and these extra stills give you the opportunity to experiment a little yeah. bit. What is kind of your t- taste-making process then? You know, how do you figure out you know, that this is the botanical blend you want for a refined gin? Yeah. You know, you, I know obviously you call upon your experience in tasting wines, yeah. but how do you make sure that the 
that you're not making six thousand liters of gin only you will drink. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How do you how do you, how do you make you know do, what, what's what's kind of that process for you? Do you bring friends over and everyone samples a whole bunch of things? Kind of what 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 do you do to make sure that the market will respond to it? Which it obviously sounds like it is. Absolutely. No, it is. That was actually one of the, like the, the 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 kind of most fun processes I think I went through in the mm-hmm. whole thing is was creating our gin recipe. Okay. Um, I worked with a, a local winemaking friend of mine, and we actually it's funny you said winemaking. We actually approached it just like we would a wine blend. We we basically went through and picked out about 17 different botanicals, um, most of them very common to gin, some that are common to the area. Okay. We soaked them in high-proof alcohol and you oh. know, let, let them soak for about a month. And then we sat down and we would we approached it just like we would a wine blend. You know, we kind of wrote out our plan, what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. And then for me, I was looking for something that had some some nice kind of juniper on the front, more than the floral side than the piney side. I wanted something that was kind of nice and earthy on the back, the, the kind of the base where it grounded it. Okay. Uh, for me, it was it's very similar to what a passel wine is about that kind of that that earthy background. And then I wanted to kind of layer in the kind of the citrus and the floral and botanical flavors. Yeah. And so we sat down with those seventeen botanicals and literally just started trying to figure out how it would be to to basically take those botanicals and make something that worked into that you know menu kind of we put together Mm -hmm. and we knew it had to be at least 51 percent juniper because that's what the definition of a gin and so we had 49 percent to work with and so we just started you know we we knew we wanted some citrus so we just started adding different percentage of citrus and seeing how that would affect it and then you know we went through and found what would give us that neat earthy quality which was the orris in our case orris Hmm. root is an iris root and uh it 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 definitely is the backbone of our, our of our gin. Okay, and and so and we just kind of went back and forth. And so yeah. when we found a direction we were liking, we would kind of continue to re, uh, fine tune it. If we started going a direction we didn't like, you know, we'd start from scratch. Yeah. And, and it's very much what we do with different varieties of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it that gave us our basic recipe when okay. we actually finally got through the whole process and it took a, you know a, a couple of days to kind of get through what, what we wanted and, and a couple of days of drinking about 180 per- <laughs> yeah you actually had to be yeah. very careful so right. that's that's why you kind of back off a little bit sure. and, and come back to it and and so when we finally came up with our base recipe it actually included seven different botanicals which are it's, uh, juniper obviously mm-hmm. coriander lemon and orange peel mm. grains of paradise orris root and lavender okay and what we found is with our base spirit, which we talked about the textural note of it before with that higher glycerol weight, we found that when we got too many botanicals, it got so intense on your palate that mm-hmm. you really couldn't pick out each individual one. Okay. When you got fewer that, than that, it didn't have the complexity on your palate. And so we sure. kind of, seven was the kind of the magic number for us. And then we took that basic recipe that we had from the the basically kind of blending seminar we did. Yeah. And then figured out the best way to infuse it. And uh, we do a, two different styles of infusion. We do both, both a soak as well as a, a vapor infusion. And, okay. uh, and that kind of gives us the neat kind of layers and depth in our gin. So. Oh, wow. So you actually, so uh, it's so kind of like the mass, mass, macerating, yeah, we do maceration a, method and... Um, as well as a vapor. As well as a vapor. Yeah. Wow. So and That's then, a lot to clean out of your still. <laughs> yeah, it is, but, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> distilling's not supposed to be easy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's like anything that's worth it. It, uh, it takes a bit of work. And, you know, it was interesting. We got very close. When we actually started mm-hmm. doing the actual infusion, we did have to tweak some of the uh, the percentages. Okay. The most, the biggest one was lavender. Lavender is unbelievably powerful. Really? And, um, and we used, in just that little kind of blending method we did, we actually used a much higher percentage. Mm-hmm. But when you actually infused it through the still, it was like... It was like a soap factory. I mean, it was so intense. <laughs> That's and amazing. so um, so it takes a very small percentage of lavender in ours, to, and you still have the perception of lavender. I didn't want it overpowering. I just wanted mm-hmm. a hint, hint in the background. 
Gotcha. So then, then for your so the, the whiskeys, it, it sounds like that's just an experimentation with the with the breweries. They deliver wort for award winning beers already. And exactly. You distill it now. You're aging and just kind of see what happens. So it's not a huge taste making process there. Yeah. Um, oh, it, for your vodka. Oh, okay. Oh, well, no, please. No, I, don't, it, I don't mean to disparage no, 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 it. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it, the um, the cool thing with the beers is we mm-hmm. are working with some of their. Uh, uh, existing recipes, but uh, yep. the rest of we are actually we are calling out grain bills. Oh, you are. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so like with the rye, we're, we're we actually called out the grain bill on the rye and the bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know, I've always been a wheat whiskey fan as well. And so, both yeah. of my rye and my bourbon um, have a high percentage of wheat in them. Just for me, I just like the, the the style that comes out with it. The you know, though I let the brewer make the beer. I mean, I'm not a brewer. <laughs> That's one alcohol I haven't messed around okay. with yet. And so, when it comes to the time of actually, you know, the temperatures that they're hitting and and the the you know the actual process of making the beer i leave it to the brewer but i am calling out the mash bill wow very cool so then do you just kind of tell them kind of how you want it to taste and they help fine-tune it for you on that exactly uh, on that and, and yeah. grain selections they are definitely helpful on okay. that so and and so the, the neat thing about the brewers is earlier like i was talking about yeah. is they they know their product if if they wouldn't come and ask me what you know tell me what grape to use yeah. <laughs> um you know they may say this is what i'm looking for um, you know but mm-hmm. i you know they they definitely you would defer to my expertise as i'm deferring to yeah. theirs and then for your vodka, what what do you kind of do for that to make sure that you get the well, what kind of notes are you trying to hit with that? You know, for me, the vodka it's really we're trying to get the cleanest ethanol we can out of the mm-hmm. grape base. Okay, but again, it's actually very interesting because I think most people think vodka is a vodka is a vodka. Yeah, and I would absolutely disagree with them. Um, uh, <laughs> it all know, burns it, on the way down. It's and, all, well, it doesn't. If and, it's good. Oh, wait a second! Uh, <laughs> but there's good vodka. So it's uh, it's funny. We actually because we can taste here at the uh, the winery, we actually pour the vodka for people at room temperature. I don't oh. chill it. I just say, hey, you know, we want. Chilling something is going to hide its flaws and make it easier to drink. Okay. If it's bad. Once again. All again. Right. So we actually pour our gin and our vodka at room temperature for people to try. And for me, it's like I'm not trying to hide any flaws in this. Mm-hmm. I want you to see how easy it is to drink when it's warm uh, because then realistically you're going to go put it in a cocktail or put it in the freezer or whatever sure. you're going to do with it. And it's going to make it that much better. Okay. And for me, because the the grape does come through and we've done a clean job from the very get-go and we don't have to filter it, our spirit actually has this beautiful kind of sweet textural note, but mm-hmm. it does have this almost this hint that tells you that it's grape. And you could probably strip that away if you wanted to, but yeah. for me, it's like, why strip it away? <laughs> because then it would be like a vodka is a vodka is a vodka. Right. It's a, it is definitely something a little bit different. And for me, we know we're getting the cleanest ethanol. Mm-hmm. We've actually worked with a, the local university, Cal Poly, yeah. and they have actually analyzed our cuts from basically the initial wine mm-hmm. all the way through the finished product and they actually told us that three distillations was more than enough okay. um, even though we do four and we did four before we went through the whole analytic process mm-hmm. of it and we've decided that we're just going to keep our initial process because that's what we do yeah but it's nice to know that even with the three we're darn near perfect yeah so. cool so Wait, so how, how did you source your materials then? Because you, you you grow a lot of grapes, mm-hmm. but how do you, how did you find the people to provide you with some of the juices that you then, that you do use for your your base product and everything? Um, yeah, you know, you were in an agricultural area in, in California. I mean, it's a winery area, yeah. but it's also an agricultural area. Do you use local? farmers uh, to help get some of your botanicals and some of your grains or... Yeah. You know, that's where I feel I'm pretty fortunate. Uh, yeah. You know, as I uh, said, we were the 17th winery here in the area. And <laughs> so I've seen this area kind of grow up and I've grown up with a lot of the people in the industry. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and so I don't know them well. I know <laughs> virtually everybody in the industry just one way or the other. You know, sure. we all cross paths. And 
And so the relationships that I have in the industry, I mean, that has been a crucial part in getting this material that, that we use for our base material. Gotcha. This is stuff that other wineries were literally going to pour down the drain. And so I'm calling people, you know, asking <laughs> them to give me, you know, this juice before they yeah, throw it yeah, away yeah. Um, and asking to buy it at a rate that I can make you know, a vodka out of at a reasonable mm-hmm. price. The cool thing is they were throwing it away before, so they're getting they're something getting for, no, for nothing. Actually, it was funny. Originally, some of them offered to pay me to take it away because at a winery, it's actually a, a, a problem to deal with. Okay. If you pour it down the drain, it actually clogs your leach fields. Oh, yeah. Um, if you put it in a pond, it can end up starting to smell. It can basically attract flies and bees. <laughs> and um, and so, uh, so... Which is lovely to see out uh, from your tasting yeah, room. You know, yeah, you don't want that. fly field. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so anyway, but no, yeah. I, I've paid from it from the get-go because, again, for me, it's the relationship. And, mm-hmm. you know, these are guys that I've, you know, I've coached t-ball with, I've coached basketball okay. with, my kids are friends with at school. And, and so it's, it's made the process great because it is that, you know, using stuff that my friends were throwing away, they're getting something out of it. I'm obviously getting something out of it. And, you know, so we're all producing something fun. Yeah. So how do you get that? How do you get the word out then about your product? Like what's your kind of your marketing move? How, how do you kind of what, what is that real? How, how do you get your product out there? How do places find out to stock refined? Yeah, what's your strategy on that? You know, for us, it's very organic. We are fortunate that we are in a, a wine region that is is really starting to get some great acclaim for the wines, mm-hmm. and so we draw in a lot of tourists that are coming specifically for the wine. And that's we've been a winery for you know twenty something yeah. years now. You're on the map, so <laughs> exactly. The map, they know to come here. Yeah. And so what we're finding is people are you know out and about. We have relatively good word of mouth with the other wineries and you know yeah. people are asking you know where would you recommend and we've been getting a lot of recommendations from other wineries saying hey you should check out that we have the one distillery here and you know there's going to be I'm sure others but you know being that first distiller is always nice uh, yeah, distillery sure. and, and so we get a lot of referral business and what we're finding is People will come to the tasting room. They'll try our products. They'll go to the local restaurants, which have been hugely supportive of, uh, of our products, try mm-hmm. them in a cocktail. And then they'll go home because a lot of them are from out of town, and they'll start asking about them. And, and they'll <laughs> yeah. go to their you know spirit shop and say, hey, have you heard of this? Or the, the restaurant where they generally get their cocktails yeah. and say, hey, I, I, I tried this new thing when I was gone. And, and we get these phone calls from restaurants mm. that we're like, we would love to sell you the product. And so, <laughs> and so um, that we just, as a small, you know, we produce 2,000 cases of wine and, mm-hmm. you know, this year we'll be about there at the on the distillery level. Okay. We can't have somebody out in the marketplace all the time. And so we yeah. really count on that organic growth through the tasting room. And it is, um, it's neat. Once people try the spirit and see how good spirits can mm-hmm. be, it's it's growing at a pretty good clip. That's awesome. And each one of those phone calls must be great validation for you. Oh. When, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Like, my customers are asking for this. How do I get it for them? Yeah. <laughs> no, and, you know, we, we see the report of uh, like restaurants that or, or, or spirit shops that pick it up, mm-hmm. and we're like, wow, how did you know? It's yeah. like the Ritz Carlton up in oh, I, I don't know if I'm even allowed to say okay. that. There, there <laughs> so, was a very nice hotel up in yes. Lake Tahoe, um, okay. and uh, and all of a sudden it showed up that they were carrying it, and I was like, that is bizarre. <laughs> and um, but then we later found out that it was literally somebody who was asking for it, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how they got it in there. Very cool, you know. Just to wrap up a little bit, now that you are, you know, it, this question is a little bit different for you because you've been on the production side for so long. But mm-hmm. how how is being on the production side of a spirit change your relationship to bars and restaurants? You know, do you go out and view things a little bit differently because you you know you you, you sit down at a bar and you see a whole bunch of other bottles back there, and do you do you, do you try to find refine see if they're stocking it or you know has that has going out changed for you now that you are on the production side? It definitely has. Yeah. I, you know, I've I've been a wine 
aficionado since probably before I was supposed to be a, a wine aficionado. <laughs> yeah. um, I was fortunate. My dad was a, a was a wine collector, and he loved wine and food, and and very much uh, took us around and uh, and showed us you know the, the beautiful parts of California and throughout the world of wine. And yeah, and so I've always been kind of wine and food focused. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have had a cocktail here and there, but okay. it was never it was never something I had really kind of focused on. And with this whole kind of craft distillery movement popping up, it's very much like my interest in, in craft beer has popped up, is that there's this whole untapped market of products that, to be honest, we were just settling for what was given to us and not really understanding how good a spirits you could actually produce. Okay. And so for me, it's now when I go to bars and to spirit shops, I'm checking and looking for things that are unique and different um and also you know really kind of checking to see you know the craft distilling movement it's 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 kind of in an infancy and so you really have to be careful because you don't know always that you know what you're buying off the shelf is really crafted or is just being made to look like it's crafted and and so it's it's what do you mean it says bottled exactly (laughs) now that's kind of one of the big secrets of the industry and so it's you know, and it's it's the same in the wine industry. It's the same in the beer okay. industry, and so yeah. it's it's been this whole new kind of kind of Pandora's box that I've opened up, and I'm just having fun, kind of learning a whole new industry yeah. that arguably is very similar to wine, but mm-hmm. it's its own entity altogether. And the you know, it's it's like being on the ground floor. I'm sure it's what probably Robert Mondavi went through, kind of when he basically Uh-oh. said that we were going to change California wine. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, before that, it was like you went in, you got, you know, what, hardy burgundy or your basic. And, and, you know, now you walk into any restaurant mm-hmm. and you have an incredible selection of California wines where with spirits, you know, I think most people could call out the brands that are going to be at any good restaurant. Yeah. And it would be like saying there's maybe one or two main players at any restaurant in wine. Mm-hmm. That's what's in the spirits industry right now. So people don't have the selection. And I think what you're going to see over the next 10 to 15 years is people will start demanding that (laughs) kind of variety in their spirits because, you know, you can produce spirits that are distinctly different, even if they're just a vodka, because uh, it does come down to quality. Yeah. And what you learned was just a vodka doesn't mean anything because who knew grape vodka? And if you hadn't asked that question, you never would have gotten here. So so the the long answer to the question is yes, I do. I do look (laughs) totally different uh, when I I walk into a restaurant now. And it's actually, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I I must admit. So the the mixologist now, you know, people, somebody asked me, he's like, what do you think about bartenders being called mixologists Mm -hmm. and i think it's great because it would be like just saying you know somebody who poured wine versus a sommelier okay those mixologists are actually learning their craft and for me it's they're figuring out what is going to work best to highlight my spirits Mm -hmm. and so they're actually knowing what is ripe in season you know if they're going to add some sort of a fruit or an infusion they're going to know classic cocktails they're going to know percentages and so they're actually you know taking their craft to that next level as mm-hmm. well and so i think mixologists bar chef whatever they want to call themselves they're definitely earning their title because they're making some incredible things with the spirits well so speaking of people making things with the spirits i just like to wrap up with one last question yeah. people go home they get a or they go to their local liquor store they buy a bottle of refined what's one recipe that you would say people should really try uh your spirit one of your spirits with uh to really capture like one of the fun uh, flavors that that refine brings to the market can yeah. you share one recipe you can say on the rocks a lot of people like to say yeah. on the rocks but, you know it, yeah. as, as nice as our spirits are on the rocks i mm-hmm. do like playing around with uh with cocktails okay and to be honest it, it uh, making cocktails for me has actually been kind of a fun thing i love cooking mm-hmm. and it's just like an almost like an extension of cooking yeah. when you actually 
get good ingredients and you have to juice the the fruit and you know and, and and actually spend time making the cocktail that's actually a fun part of the process doing it and you know if you have friends or if you're just you know having one for yourself it's sure. a, it's it's nice to be able to kind of have a process to make the drink and mm-hmm. the one that i really like and part of it is because it kind of ties in our base material the wine with okay. what we're actually producing is one that's called the plum sour oh. um, and it was actually created by one of the local restaurants here in Paso Robles mm-hmm. and it uses actually our refined gin um, and it's actually a very simple recipe okay. so it uses uh, one ounce of the refined gin. We use about a half ounce of, of fresh lemon juice, about a half ounce of a simple syrup. Simple syrup always intimidates people, but it's really just one part water and one part sugar. I mean, it's really easy. <laughs> simple. It's in the name. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, a couple dashes of plum bitters, if you can find some oh, plum, plum bitters. bitters. Oh, interesting. And then what we do is we actually float a little red wine right on the top of the Whoa. cocktail. And okay. so for me, it's neat because it ties together the wine mm-hmm. and, the, and the spirit that was produced with the wine. And, okay. uh, and so we call it the plum sour. It's a great refreshing cocktail. And it's funny, a lot of times recipes will call out vodka on a, a recipe mm-hmm. and I always play around with the gin sometimes because I think gin sometimes can add a little bit more complexity to a simple uh, vodka uh, cocktail yeah and so it's 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 fun huh. to play around I mean the a cocktail recipe is just kind of a starting point yep. you can play around with different flavors and you know different bitters and you know different juices sure and see where it takes you because that's uh, that's kind of the fun part of, uh, of experimenting just like cooking yeah absolutely well, Alex, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, you bet. I'm, I'm excited to, to be here, and, and, uh, and thanks, thanks for uh, your interest. Absolutely. Absolutely.